Thank you for listening to Ivy Podcast, where we feature weekly leadership conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Now, here is your host, John Karsibayev. Hi there, I'm Rachel Starr, and I'm an early stage investor at Unusual Ventures. Rachel, thanks so much for finding time and joining us on the Ivy Podcast. I understand you're visiting Miami these days. I am, yes. How was uh, how was the experience so far? It's been great. I uh, have some family in the area, so it's been awesome to get to spend some time with them and uh, heading back out to San Francisco shortly. That's awesome. Yeah, we've uh, we've been quite hot these days, not only from the weather perspective, but from the tech scene, the, all of the stuff that goes on with our mayor. He's actually supposed to be coming on the show soon as well. So we're going to talk a lot about also the Miami Tech Week that just happened. So a lot of exciting things, kind of the mini version of the Silicon Valley, I guess. Yeah, um, it's awesome to see. Yeah, for sure. Uh, before we talk about your current role and what you're currently working on, want to spend a little bit of time getting to know you. Tell us, uh, share with us a thumbnail version of your career timeline and what have you done prior to what you're currently working on? Yeah, it's a great question. And I have bounced around quite a bit in my career. Um, so I'll, I'll start with college. I uh, went to Northwestern University. I studied uh, manufacturing engineering and psychology. So sort of an unconventional combination, but to me, it was really about understanding products from various different lenses. So marrying the technical side of how do you actually make and manufacture something with the psychological side of who is your user? How do you understand how people interact with objects on a day-to-day basis? Um, I then did a quick stint at the Rhode Island School of Design studying studio art. Um, So wanted to get the artistic and creative lens in that whole product design world. Uh, took uh, a detour and joined McKinsey & Company based out of our Chicago office, uh, primarily focused on the retail sector, um, and then joined Nordstrom Inc. based out of Seattle um, on the corporate strategy team. So um, took a number of different stops before joining uh, my first role in VC, which was at Shasta Ventures. Uh, I was there on the early stage consumer team for a handful of years, and then just joined Unusual about a year ago. Oh, wow. Super exciting. Thanks for that overview. What a diverse uh, and interesting background you got from different sectors, different industries. Um, as far as your current role, tell us a little bit more about that. What falls under your purview? What are kind of the interesting sides of your responsibilities? Happy to hear about that. Yeah. So at Unusual, I sit on our consumer team, which means I cover everything consumer facing from consumer social products, consumer finance, and anything that you or I might use um, on a day-to-day basis. I also spend a lot of time covering the fintech sector. Um, So in addition to consumer fintech, I look at B2B finance products and other fintech infrastructure. Um, A day in the life for me can range greatly, but I spend a lot of my time trying to source and find new potential investments for the firm, um, doing diligence and research on various sectors to support those potential investments. And then I spend a decent amount of time supporting our existing investments and working with our portfolio founders on various different things that might come up for them. Well, that's super cool. And which, you know, raises so many other questions that I want to cover with you today, but I know we're limited on time in terms of 
the deal flow from unusual ventures, I guess, perspective, I'm sure you guys get, you know, great deal flow from just founders and startup, you know, um, people just supplying directly to you. Aside from that, what are the different sources of deal flow, deal flow for you that, you know, you found to be useful, you found to be interesting that you explore maybe on a daily basis? Yeah. I think one of the most exciting things about investing at the early stage is that great founders can come from anywhere. And so with that, great deals can come from anywhere. And so, you know, throughout my career, I have found deals in some of the most unexpected places, uh, which is always amazing, especially on the consumer side. You know, we have the luxury of running into interesting products in our day-to-day life. Um, So actually the first deal that I ever sourced in my career was my first week on the job. Um, And I attended an event, I snuck in, it was actually a Harvard Business School event. I didn't go to Harvard Business School, but um, I met a fantastic young female founder, uh, really clicked with her and had her and her co-founder come in. It was the first meeting I ever took solo as an investor and um, converged on a fantastic investment, one that I'm very proud of. Um, And that was just happenstance of, you know, being at the right place at the right time um, running into people at events and, and getting to know folks um, in various different ways. Mm-hmm. I think um, more recently, and as I've matured in my career, I found um, my sourcing has become a little bit more thematic or theme focused. Um, and so I like to do kind of a deep dive on a very kind of niche sector, trying to understand the ins and outs. I find particularly when you're looking at complex things, FinTech is a great example. It's really helpful to come into even first meetings with founders with a little bit of a prepared mind on the topic. Otherwise it's easy to get bogged down in the details of regulatory and other things that um, you know have to research uh, in order to really understand the product. Um, so I tend to pick off one or two topics per month really spend some time trying to understand that, speaking with people who are in the industry and oftentimes through that, either they'll connect me with founders who are relevant or maybe I'll post something on LinkedIn or Twitter and, and folks will will kind of come out of the woodwork through that. Well, that's very interesting and thanks for sharing that. So, you know, definitely very creative ways, creative strategies to diversify your deal flow. And I can attest to, you've mentioned and alumni networks, uh, I'm part of the, you know, the HBS alumni angels, and the quality of startups that are presenting on, you know, on a monthly basis, uh, it's 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 outstanding. And you know, your creative ways to, you know, be part of you know an ecosystem like this, I think that's that's a great way to kind of increase the quality and more diversity of your deal flow. Um, as far as unusual ventures, what's what's the I guess what's the story behind the naming? What's uh, how how did that all come about? Can you share with us anything from that perspective? Sure. Yeah. So the name unusual, like many good nicknames, is one that was given to us, not one that we chose for ourselves. But when the team was out doing some early fundraising conversations and explaining their vision for what they wanted to build. Uh, folks kept saying, hey, that sounds pretty unusual, or, oh, I haven't heard of anyone else doing that yet. Um, And so with that, the name Unusual was born. Um, And I think it kind of comes down to two main factors. So the first thing is how our team is structured. Um, And the the core focus there is almost everyone on our team has either been involved with early stage companies for many years, or has actually founded companies on their own. And I think with that comes a deep appreciation for how hard it is. Um, and a deep empathy for the founders that we work with. And so with that in mind, we try to be helpful. 
And I know that, you know, many investors say that. And um, I, I think, you know, everyone wants to be helpful in their own way, but we have tried to build a structure um, at the firm specifically that supports our ability to help out these early stage founders. So that's everything from the content we put out on our website to, um, you know, the partners we've got on our investment team. And probably most importantly, we've got an awesome group of folks on our team that we called the GAP program or the Get Ahead platform. And these are folks who've been operators in important areas like sales, marketing, and recruiting. And they're full-time with Unusual, but they spend almost 100% of their time working with our portfolio companies. So we've really got a structure in-house to be able to support founders as they go through some of the critical stages of company building. Well, that's great. Definitely sounds unusual. Uh, so uh, <laughs> appreciate the backstory on that. You've mentioned uh, value add investor, uh, which is a very interesting topic. I'm very passionate about this. Be, having been on both sides as a founder operator, now on on the angel investing side and part of other syndicates, it's it's an interesting dynamic. It's a very interesting uh, relationship and sentiments just in general. Where if you talk to the investment community, VC community, they have one one take on that. From the founder standpoint, it's you know could be different. Um, for, from your perspective, what are some of the things or strategies that really help you kind of break that barrier as a true value add investor, where you you're not just coming in and helping from financial standpoint, but also trying to genuinely come up with strategies or things that really help the founders and their startups grow? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it almost starts before you invest in a company. And so one of the things that we feel really passionate about at Unusual is actually creating content and putting it out there to the world, not just to the founders that we work with, about what it takes to start a company. And we actually recently just launched uh, a Spark program, which is early pre-seed investment from us in addition to some support from the team, I think with the realization that, you know, for many founders, the first round is a friends and family round and not everybody has access to friends and family who can invest in their company. And so in that way, the first way we can be value add is, hey, like, let us be that friend, family member. Let us invest early in your company and support your idea. Um, but beyond that, I, I think it really comes down to figuring out the strengths of a founder and then being able to support them in their areas that maybe they don't have experience. Um, for many folks who are founding companies, they wear a lot of hats, especially in the early days when maybe it's a team of two or three. Um, you know, Oftentimes we're supporting very technical founders, folks who are brilliant engineers, but maybe they've never been in charge of sales or recruiting or marketing before, um, or maybe vice versa. It's a team that has a really unique insight to a specific market, uh, but doesn't have the, the technical background to actually build the product that they're envisioning. And so that we can support them hiring that first set of engineers. I think one of the things that's really fascinating and has been a big learning for me is that hiring is one of the most challenging things to do for an early stage company. And there's the question of where do you find great talent, which is certainly something that we work with our companies on, but also how do you know who's great and how do you understand, particularly for skill sets that are not your own, what questions do you ask and how do you benchmark and evaluate whether or not this person is the right person to bring onto your team? So that's a, a big area that we help with as well. Um, thinking about, okay, you're hiring that first salesperson. You've never done sales before. You know, How do you think about that interview process and how do you make sure that this is really the right person to add? So I think that's a big area for us and something that um, you know, even as company scale continues to be um, an important priority, but at the early stage, 
the initial team is really critical um, and in many cases can be kind of a, a make or break for a company. Right, right, absolutely. I love that take on the overall talent acquisition for startups because that's the space that we play in. And I, I've seen, you know, the transformation, especially in the market where we are these days, where it's not even necessarily the war for talent. It's almost a war on retention because with so, you know, everyone shifting to fully remote, everyone thought about, oh, great, I'm going to get this insane access to talent worldwide. But that also increased the competition 10x, where you have companies with brand names, with much better packages, with much, you know, greater cultures uh, going after that same talent as well. So it becomes very challenging for startups, not only to attract, but also retain the talent because all of the companies are after that segment. But I'm sure we can talk about that, you know, for for the rest of the episode. Um, To switch gears a little bit on you, you've mentioned you gave us a little bit of, uh, you know, history on your on your career timeline you spent some time in consulting on the consumer side but in general is that was that the career path that you were after in terms of going into the venture capital you know investing um the reason i'm asking is because a good portion of our listeners on the ivy podcast side we have um early stage career professionals second year mbas and a lot of questions that we get are you know from overall career perspective uh, what are the different takes and from the practitioner standpoint, uh, just share with us your thoughts on that, how to go about that career trajectory uh, as you look into venture capital? Yeah, it's a great question. And quite honestly, I think, you know, when I was in school and when I was kind of debating my career path, I never even thought about venture capital as something that I could do. Mm-hmm. I think I, you know, thought it was a career for people who had a full career first and then maybe they were in their 50s they you know were experienced and had you know expertise across various different areas that they could then apply to investing it never crossed my mind that that was a job i could have at at 25 um but i i think for me the the biggest piece of advice that i give to folks who are interested in venture um, and certainly i think is what pulled me into the industry is to just follow your passion because I think that the best investors out there are people who have strong points of view on various different sectors. And I think, you know, no matter what that sector is, you will be most successful if you really enjoy spending time researching it, talking about it, and building out connections in the industry because that's what you're going to spend all of your time doing. Um, and so for me, initially, that was retail and consumer products. So I spent time at Nordstrom. I spent time thinking about how the direct-to-consumer ecosystem was affecting the big box retailers and folks like um, you know, Nordstrom and our peers. I also ordered every single direct-to-consumer product and tried it out myself just because I found it fascinating. And I remember in my first set of interviews with what became my, my first role in venture, I was on Zoom in my apartment and uh, the partners were asking me about some of the different things that I was interested in. And I just remember shifting my computer screen over and showing them this pile of boxes that I had in my apartment of all of the different products that I'd tried. And I just went through them one by one and said, okay, I liked this one. I didn't like this one. Here's what I think they could do better. Um, And that's what I did in my free time. I loved it. And so for me, I was able to talk really authentically and passionately about that topic. Um, of course, as my career has progressed, I've moved into other areas as well. But I think that's what made it possible for me to break into this industry was just like 
my authentic feelings about this space and the fact that I was willing to dedicate both my time during the day as a job, but also my time after work to researching and getting to know the industry. So I, I think more so than exactly what job you hold or you know what degree you have from which university, I think that kind of drive in one area, building out your own thesis and making those connections is probably the most important. Very interesting. And from a standpoint of something that was, you know, that you didn't quite expect, or maybe the dark side of the industry, tell us a little bit more about that. What's what what has been the most, you know, unusual, I guess, about venture capital that you didn't know about that, you know, you I guess you wish you did. Yeah, I'll answer that in two ways, because the first thing that comes to mind is the biggest surprise, I actually think is a huge positive. Um, but I definitely didn't realize how collaborative the industry was. Um, and so, you know, no matter what stage you're at, there's likely to be investors who are investing in the companies you work with before you and after you. Um, and in any given round, more often than not, there's a number of different investors involved as well. And so the venture capital community is actually relatively close. And, you know, in my first couple of weeks, I got the opportunity to meet you know, new investors joining other firms, work together with them and actually get to build pretty strong relationships with uh, a cohort of, of other individuals who are now, um, you know, both close friends and also colleagues in various different ways. I think, you know, my experience at McKinsey, of course, we weren't collaborating with our, you know, peers over at BCG or at Bain. And similarly at Nordstrom, we were never collaborating with the teams over at, at Macy's or Bloomingdale's. But in VC, it's, it's the opposite. You know, your network of other investors actually is really valuable. And so for me, it was really cool to get to partner with folks at other firms, get to know them and build kind of collective theses on different areas. I've been able to co-invest with a few of them, which has been really fun. And so I think that was a surprise um, that definitely uh, has made my experience more positive. Um, to answer your question about the dark side, I think, you know, for many investors, the hardest thing that we have to do, and we have to do it multiple times a day, is say no. Um, you know, of all the meetings that I take, less than one percent are companies that we actually end up investing in, um, and it's not always clear cut. There's times when there's founders that I really love, and the deal terms don't make sense, or it's a market that I think is really interesting, but I am not able to move fast enough and build conviction on the product. Um, and so, a lot of times those conversations are really hard and you have to, you know, sit down with somebody who maybe you've met a couple of times and you've spent a lot of time with and say, Hey, you know, I know this is your dream and I know you have a lot of conviction in it, but I, I can't support you in that way. Um, and for me, I think that is a really challenging conversation every single time, no matter how many times I do it, it doesn't get easier. Um, and, you know, coming as somebody and, you know, our, our whole firm is built of people who want to help. And so being able to help is something that we love to do. And when we can't do that, I think that's hard. And, you know, we, we spend a lot of time having those conversations. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. You know, from the two perspectives, I, I really liked the, the, the overall concept that the entire industry of venture capital is very collaborative. And that makes sense because in the way that you're operating in very similar fields and you're probably valuing the same deals. So it makes sense to collaborate versus then competing because then it just creates completely different dynamic and relationship with the founders and whatever the case may be. So that makes total sense. And then from the standpoint of, uh, I guess, rejection, uh, it's, you know, probably nine out of 10 times you have to say no, but to that point, 
have you gotten better to increase your batting average, so to say, when you meet with, let's say, those 10 startups, 10 founders, maybe two years ago, where nine out of 10 was an immediate no, versus maybe now you've increased your approach or your your thesis or whatever the case may be to pre-select that group. Uh, is there any difference or any any particular steps that you have taken to improve that? Yeah, I definitely think um, doing some of the research up front is really helpful. And so when I first started, I would take meetings with anybody. I would, you know, hear their story, learn about the market, and then do my research afterwards. Um, and that led to a lot of instances where, you know, after a, a couple minutes of research, I could clearly get to an answer, hey, you know, maybe this market's not big enough, or, you know, maybe it's too complex or regulated and I don't want to participate. Um, by front loading the research and picking out areas proactively that I'm excited about, it makes it so that even if a company, um, you know, isn't ultimately something we invest in, it's usually a little bit more of a interesting conversation. And it gets to a point where I can ask those, the sorts of questions that help me get to an answer faster. And so um, definitely that that piece of the puzzle, I think, has fallen into place. But, um, you know, no matter no matter how sure you are about markets or um, how excited you are about various different spaces, I think, you know, the the reality of the industry is that you're always going to take a lot of meetings with companies that you don't invest in. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, that's just a piece of the puzzle. Right, right, right. Absolutely. And when we talk about um, the actual evaluation strategy, when you do that research, when you talk to others and, you know, follow, I guess, the digital breadcrumbs uh, to maybe evaluate a founder, um, from the founder market fit, what are some of the things that really help you make those very early predictions about the particular founder. The reason I ask this is because before we get to the kind of the product market fit and assessing the overall market, I'm pretty sure that one of the initial things you look at the founder or the founding team. And for me, what I had found through kind of several years being, being in this field is the ability to clearly articulate what you don't know is one of the very rare abilities for startup founders. You know, I, I remember it was very hard for me as well because you know, we, we're moving at the 10,000 miles per hour trying to build this, thinking we know everything, but also at the same time is looking at very early careers of the founders, maybe even high school or early career day, college days where, did you join the club or did you build a club? Or were you a, I heard it somewhere on a podcast where a guy talked about cartographer versus a navigator where were you just following the map or, you, or were you actual cartographer where you created the actual map for others to follow so those are some of the things that's very interesting to me I want to get your take on that yeah yeah I think um, you're spot on that evaluating a founder and understanding their perspective on the market is one of the biggest things that we do in our diligence process especially at the early stage um, I think there's a few different factors that come into that decision so the first is do they have some sort of unique insight or unique perspective on a market that the average person might not know? Um, and so oftentimes this comes from people who've worked in the industry or maybe they've been the customer that they're trying to sell to. And so they have some kind of like secret sauce that they can provide and say, hey, this is something that not everybody would know about this industry. And it's a problem that I am uniquely positioned to go solve. So I, I think that's a big piece of it. The second is, can they actually build whatever it is they say they want to build? I think for a lot of folks, 
you know, there's the idea phase, which is, which is really interesting and very important. But then there's also kind of the technical chops of, do you know how to build a product? Can you get something off the ground? And I, I think that really goes to your point or, um, you know, the, the question of the, the navigator, um, maybe that, that's not somebody who knows how to build something from scratch. And so I, I think trying to suss out, is this person somebody who can build something um, is definitely a big piece of the product process for us. Um, and I think the last, the last part, and this goes a little bit to the, is this somebody who can build something, but, um, is this somebody who other people will want to work for? Mm -hmm. And is this somebody who can hire a good team? Um, you know, no matter how amazing a founder is, whether they know the market inside and out, whether they can build the product product from scratch, if they can't hire people to work for them, it's never going to work. Um, and so for some folks, that means having a really strong network of engineers. For some folks, that means they're really charismatic and great at telling the story. For other folks, you know, it, it means that they, you know, are just somebody that has experience and people are excited to, to work with. But I, I think that's a really key part of the puzzle too, is, you know, trying to evaluate whether from references or spending time with somebody on their hiring strategy to figure out, will this person be able to attract A plus people to come join the company? Right, right, right. Absolutely. No, that's a that's a great perspective. And you, you've mentioned something that's very seems simple, but oftentimes overlooked is as an investor, almost our ability to get get along with the founder as well, because through the next 10 years, we're going to be together, we're going to be attached to the hip. And it's almost a relationship that we're both investing into. It's not just me investing and stepping away. It's really, can we actually go and grab a drink together and have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation where it's not investor to a founder, but more in a sense, hey, this is where we're struggling. What do we do about this? From Because when the com company has to pivot and those things, I think those small nuances become very important when you have that ability and the confidence level to have that honest conversation with, with your investor, with your partner. So that's, that's very powerful. Um, when we, as we move on from kind of that founder risk to, to, to the actual product category, and we'll look at the product market fit and the early indicators that, you know, that particular company has, scratch the surface that there is a potential there is interest share with us your thoughts on some of the things that you look for what do you evaluate what are the maybe those indicators that tell you maybe that's that's there's something there yeah it really varies by sector but i think one of the things that we really look for is some indication of an organic swell of passion and energy whether that's people who are tweeting about how much they love the product, whether that's people who are spending hours and hours and hours using the product in a given week, or whether that's people who are referring their friends. I think that at the earliest stages, um, having people and having users who will be a champion for you is really important. And of course you can always tack on sales and marketing efforts down the road, but that organic love is something that's really hard to tack on later. And so at the earliest stages, there's you know various different metrics that you can look at, but um, I, I think that spark is something that, that we try to find. Um, and so that that is often kind of one of the earliest indicators of product market fit in our opinion. Right, yeah, that's very interesting. And I think from the organic perspective, it's 
very important to look at, you know, also what has the founder done at the very early stage to really generate and garner some type of interest. We, you know, yeah, we get that. We do, you, you may not have the actual product, you may not have the actual technology, but validating that there is some type of interest, maybe some, you know, sign up list where you have people that are expressing an interest and spending time interviewing them. Uh, those are some of the things that I think you're also referring to. That's that's very interesting. Um, what what are some of the trends and insights that really excite you these days? Where do you spend a lot of your free time that's maybe outside of your day-to-day job when you evaluate the startups? Maybe something that's for you know for you personally that's very interesting. What are what are some of the things that you think will be the next big thing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for me. Um, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting over the past year has been thinking about how we all work and inter- interact with our coworkers. Um, and for me, I started at Unusual at the end of March 2020. So I have never been into our office. I have not met a lot of my teammates, and that's been a really interesting adjustment. And I think there's significant pros and cons to that structure. Um, and, you know, as we discussed, I've had the luxury of, of working out here in Florida for a couple months. Um, and so trying to understand the momentum around remote work um, is something that I feel really strongly about. And, and I think that there's various different pieces of infrastructure, whether that's communication tools, whether that's hiring tools, whether that's, you know, other ways that people can work together in interesting ways. Um, that will really fuel the future of our society. And, and I think there's a, a couple things that that really go into that. There's, of course, the pandemic and everyone's had to get used to new ways of working. But I also think when you look at demographic trends and you look at Gen Z, when you look at new grads who are coming out of school, their perspective on what a successful career path looks like is a lot different than even it was for me and certainly than it was for my parents. Um, And so I think for me, I'm really keen to be kind of a student of the consumer and a a student of those uh, demographic shifts. And I I think that um, as more and more young people enter the workforce, there will be a pull for some more flexibility, whether that's enabling freelancers, whether that's having more collaboration tools that enable remote work or asynchronous communication. Um, I find that really fascinating. and, And that's certainly something that I'm spending a lot of time on. Yeah, that's very interesting, very unique sector, but I can see how, you know, that could be very big, very big trend in general that we're all experiencing in our everyday lives. I think that's super interesting. And Rachel, in conclusion, I'd like to spend some time on your content diets. What do you consume on daily basis? What's, what are your sources for learning? What are the different, uh, I don't know, handles you may be following? Share with us your, uh, your, your secret sources that are bookmarked in your browser. Yeah. I, um, I definitely, you know, I'm active on Twitter. I, I think that's a great source of news and perspectives. There's a handful of newsletters that I, I really enjoy reading. Um, Simon Taylor's FinTech Brain Food is a favorite of mine. I also really like the Accelerated Newsletter by Justine and Olivia at CRV. Um, but, but I think for me, particularly on the consumer side, one of the things that I love is just talking to, to people who come from different backgrounds or who have different lifestyles than me. I think it's really easy to be in this tech bubble of, you know, people who work at startups and people who invest in startups. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who 
have, you know, different sets of needs and use different sorts of products, whether that's talking to my grandma about what she uses and what she's interested in and what her needs are, or, you know, maybe that's talking to a friend who just had a baby and is in a different stage of life or someone who's planning a wedding. Um, I, I think that getting to understand um, different perspectives where people are struggling in their lives um, is actually the best sort of content diet, if you will, for a consumer investor. So, um, I, I, you know, there's nothing that makes me happier than getting to call up people in my life and get their perspectives on a company that I'm looking at, or even better having, you know, my mom or my brother send me something and saying, Hey, have you looked at this? I just downloaded this app and I think it's really cool. Um, so, so that's, that's a big priority for me is trying to break out of just the tech ecosystem and try to understand, um, you know, the bigger picture of what's going on. And it's also a great way to connect with people in my life. So uh, I, I certainly love that. So combining work with with personal, it's uh, it, it's pretty interesting. I'm actually going to steal that from you because a lot of times we don't think of you know our very close circles, our loved ones, our families as potential sources for motivation, learning, and things like that. So I, I really like that advice, that recommendation. And Rachel, I asked this question not only on the podcast, uh, but also you know the people that I interview uh, for our jobs, for our companies, and it's I found that question to be interesting because it really puts things in perspective. Uh, not only just you know praising, I guess, the other side or thinking of ways what has gone well, but also evaluating yourself as you think about some of the responses that you also provided as we had that conversation. So just in general, how do you think this conversation went? Um, that's a great question. I think that, you know, for me, I spend a lot of time talking about the industry, talking about my firm, talking about my path into venture capital, but it's always great to, to reflect and, you know, have a reminder of, of how far I've come. I think, you know, specifically the questions that you asked around how my process has changed over the years, um, you know, on any given day, it feels like there's, you know, just incremental changes. But when I really look back and say, you know, what was it that I was doing three years ago that I just am embarrassed that I did <laughs> or what has changed in my process? It's, it's always a great reminder for me. Um, and, a, and a good learning experience. I don't always take uh, enough time to take a step back and think through that thing. So uh, for me, it, it's been valuable to take that time and, and get to do a little bit of reflection. Um, and you know, for you, I hope it was a, a helpful conversation and, and I hope the listeners will, will get something out of this. Oh yeah, absolutely. I definitely appreciate all the insights and you know everything you had shared with us. I personally learned quite a bit and I'm pretty sure our listeners will do as well. I'm going to stay in touch with you and perhaps you know I like to do another episode in about a year or so and see also how much have changed and transpired through this period and talk a little bit of you know time as far as the reflection on here's the conversation we had a year ago what has changed how maybe your entire process or anything like this. So that's what I like to do. Perfect. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.